Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Uh, it's been a while, but I'm still Dr. Simon, and this is still my show, uh, Stories We Live By. And tonight's uh, show is more stories about psychotherapy, in which psychotherapy, therapy is put in quotes, and the politics of human relationships. And I want to talk a little bit about my motivation. Uh, It has been my motivation to do these shows for a while now. Um, And it deals today with authoritarian and totalitarian tribalism. I find myself in great anxiety at present. And it has nothing to do with my being a Democrat uh, and and uh, upset with Republicans in any specific way. It is that I grew up in what I believe to be, and I have personal experience, my life experience tells me, uh, I grew up in a democracy. <clears throat> Not a perfect democracy, very far from a perfect democracy. And that we are potentially descending more rapidly than I thought we could into a totalitarian or at least authoritarian system. So let me define some of the terms. Um, Now, as I go on, I hope people call in. But of late, I've been getting calls really right out of Fox News, which at this point I consider state radio. And the issue is not that they have a discussion, but an argument or a debate on the truth of whether uh, the, 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 what I see, the forces of, of authoritarianism and tribalism uh, versus what's left, the, the uh, rather sad, uh, disorganized attempts at maintaining uh, a democratic society. And I won't do that. So I'd love if people want to call in, but let, we won't get into a debate. Now, for two reasons. One, these debates are pointless. They're just pointless. They're like arguing uh, whether uh, Judaism or Catholicism or Islam is the best religion. They don't lead to anything because they're based not on fact, but on faith. And uh, faith that one's belief system is the truth. Um, And facts don't matter within those kinds of discussions. Uh, So that's one reason. I I can't deal with pointless discussions. They're just too upsetting. But the second thing is, and I have done a series of shows on psychotherapy uh, recently, and, and I talked in one show about the limits of psychotherapy. To do psychotherapy, you really require a kind of a, uh, a democratic system, one in which there is an authority, the therapist, because if the therapist doesn't know something that the individual who comes for help knows, then there's no point. Uh, the guiding of the conversation is to allow individuals a safe space to explore alternate views to the ones that they have grown up with 
that almost always come from an authoritarian system, a set of authoritarian relationships in which the individual uh, learned what the truth was, and those truths make the individual miserable. They prevent them from developing a kind of individuality, a creative individuality that allows them to maintain a relationship with family, with marriage, with school, with society, uh, because we can't survive without our tribe, without our social organizations. We, we don't raise ourselves. We must have family um, or a substitute for family to teach us how to be human, to be only part of a hierarchy, and I'll explain in a little bit. I want to talk at some length. And I'm not going to rush this today. Uh, what I can't do uh, uh, tonight, I'm going to do over subsequent weeks um, and find time to do this. Um, and, and find a balance between being a creative individual and a good citizen, a good participant uh, uh, in trying to maintain a social order that allows for the survival of the group in the face of all manner of difficulties and potential enemies, but at the same time um, um, allows individuality. That is a lifelong struggle. Uh, raising one's children, and I raise three, and I watch my three raise six more children, it's the same struggle. How do you get them to become good citizens of their family, of their school, of what you believe to be the right way to live as a social being, and at the same time, to fulfill their dreams and to fulfill their ambitions, their personal ambitions, to allow the individuality that every human being has to blossom in a way that has the least degree of, of destructive conflict with being a member of the social order. So if you call in, it's going to be about the topic we're going to discuss today. And more and more, uh, this for me has been... Uh, Illuminating this idea of looking at things from a political point of view uh, and, and the structure of the politics and how the politics of our relationships affects our psychology and in turn how our psychology affects the politics of our relationships. Now, uh, this all grew out of, and anybody who follows my show knows how I feel <clears throat> about the mental health industry. So all grew out of my discovery, and it was really a discovery, that what I had been taught about unhappy people, depressed people, angry people, confused people, uh, myself, when I'm depressed and angry and confused, uh, what I learned in school was that we were mentally ill, that mental illness defines uh, the topic that we're interested in as therapists, and that we're sort of doctors of the mind. We help fix the illnesses or cure the illnesses or change the processes that are disordered into ones that are ordered. 
And it's been a long, long struggle to step out of that system, which is essentially authoritarian. And I'm not going to go into the specifics of, of why there's no such thing as mental illness, because it's not illness. Right? If, in fact, it'll be shown that any particular psychological problem and unhappiness, depression or what we call schizophrenia, uh, is a brain disease, which I hear now blatantly stated in the most authoritarian ways, uh, then they wouldn't be mental. They're physical. They're real illnesses. But there is no evidence that any of the DSM diagnoses, uh, except perhaps dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, are, are really motivated or created by biological processes in the main. Okay. Uh, that is, processes that are definably uh, uh, illness that they're so far off the mark of what is uh, healthy uh, that we have to recognize them as medical problems. So here I am, uh, struggling day to day, afraid to turn on the television, to see uh, what's happening now, the attack on the FBI, uh, the attack on the free press, those institutions which in many ways uh, allow our democracy to deal with those, uh, expose the, tr the facts. I almost said the truth. It's not the truth. Expose the facts that allow us to make decisions as citizens and protect us from those who would, in fact, try to damage the society where we, we live in in very significant ways. I don't know if we're not going to descend all the way into authoritarianism and try, and I, let me give some definitions now. I want to go into the nature of, of this. Uh, but anyway, more and more in my work, I left psychology, not my work, but, but my reading, my trying to understand what, what I was dealing with and began to read uh, uh, alternative venues, a lot of philosophy. Um, uh, when I realized that uh, it was a wonderful paper, and I can't remember the name of the author. I can't remember names now. In fact, it, it's to the point where it really does alarm me. Um, uh, I could look it up, uh, and maybe I will later, and, and uh, <coughs> sometime in the future for anybody who's interested, give the reference that we're all politicians, we're all scientists, we're all economists. We are all the things that we need to be to live in the world. Now, we're not trained scientists, most of us, or economists, uh, but standing outside of the field that we're raised in allows us, like a good psychotherapy, to examine the beliefs that we were taught and to question them and to see uh, if there are different ways of looking at our beliefs so that we can evaluate which of them really mess us up and mess up those uh, that we deal with. And I believed that the authoritarian and the totalitarian system mess us up. Now, we are tribal animals. We survived because we form groups. 
Uh, but then we became tool-bearing tribal animals. Uh, we developed language. And the hunter-gatherer phase, in which small groups wandered around very often not finding any contact, having contact with other groups for long periods of time, became a, uh, uh, because of, of, of planting food and storing food, uh, became an enormous population that now butts up against one another. And we still maintain our suspicions and the processes of our tribalism. What is the structure of authoritarianism and totalitarianism? What does it look like? And I've talked about this before, but I'm going to spend some time in detail talking about it now. In an authoritarian system, it's a hierarchical structure. Somebody leads. Now, it's very important to have a leader that has the wherewithal and the wisdom to protect us uh, from marauding tribes, other tribes, <coughs> or to maintain in some way the order within our own structure so that it doesn't dissolve and become an anarchy. Uh, in my reading of politics, there are really three kinds of political systems I read about. One is the authoritarian, two is the democratic, uh, which as we'll see is very new, and still unusual in the history of the world. And three is anarchy. Now, it's interesting that there are people who are avowed anarchists. They want no hierarchical structure at all. Each individual should be able, through negotiation and dealing with other human beings, um, to maintain a so set of social relationships that allow everybody to survive without there being a hierarchy. And that, I believe, is impossible. Uh, for most of us, anarchy it represents the breakdown of a social order, everybody running and doing what they want to do uh, and when they want to do it in their own way without regard for the larger social good without regard to a cohesive culture. Uh, the belief that this is possible is still believed by individuals. And uh, I'm not an anarchist. Uh, over the time, I'll talk about the relationship between anarchy and totalitarianism, because very often when totalitarian and authoritarian systems break down, they become anarchistic. In a democracy, what you have is leadership. There is a social structure, a hierarchy. But it's a hierarchy in which everybody is assumed to have worth, a hierarchy in which everybody has a right to say. And as Oz, as a democracy, has been uh, growing for such a long time, 250, 260 years, uh, it is a hierarchy in which we elect our leaders, and the leaders don't become permanent and don't allow their children to become leaders simply because they're their children. We look for people and have looked for people uh, for uh, a very long time uh, who are able to be our leaders. 
Now, at the top of the hierarchy, you have individuals such as a leader whose job is it to ensure the survival of the tribe. As I've spoken about many times, uh, human beings are essentially moral. They are moral. We are endlessly justifying what we do. Now, morality doesn't exist in any universal way, but it exists, a right and wrong. So every one of us is not only a scientist trying to figure out how things work, how to survive, but a moral philosopher. This is right and this is wrong. And in the hierarchy, what has evolved in almost every human society, I'm not sure there's any that's not, uh, is a notion of a higher authority, gods, God, and someone who now speaks for the gods. In an authoritarian system, the leader of the society is usually a warrior and becomes the leader by his prowess in defeating enemies and ensuring the survival of the tribe. But the justification for what the leader believes very often comes from the clergy who speak for the higher power. And in an authoritarian system, the higher power is somehow always anointing and agreeing with the policies and the methods of control by the, the warrior leader. Human history is written in blood. Because we are moral, we want to justify our beliefs. We want to survive, and we also want to matter. In the hierarchical system, people at the top declare themselves and are believed to matter more than those below. People in enemy tribes or people within the tribe who are not accepted as full members of the tribe are always a threat. And these individuals are in many ways dehumanized and if they become a threat, demonized. In the religious terminology, in the clerical terminology, they are evil. In the political, they're traitorous. They're guilty of treason. We butt up against other tribes. We live within these tribes uh, together. And the danger to a democracy is when some members of the tribe are not accepted internal to the tribe or other tribes that are external, this time in terms of nations, because tribally the world is organized uh, in terms of nations, it's national organization, there's a constant threat of war because the leader, in order to prove his worth, has to always be fighting and leading battles against those who are treasonous and those who are evil and those who are the demons the less than humans that would destroy us. In a good democracy, the tribal boundaries are very wide. When I went to public school, I learned the Pledge of Allegiance. 
pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. If you were an American, you were part of the larger tribe. Now, of course, this is not true. Wasn't true then. It's not true now. When uh, let me talk a little bit about our country. One of the great books I think everybody should read, and everybody should read it. Uh, a couple of books: John Adams' book, uh, the book of John Adams by uh, Oh God, it's terrible. But anyway, I'll stay with Chernow's book on Alexander Hamilton. The big battle of the people within our first government, the people who established the Constitution, was. Uh, a loathing and a fear of monarchy. That was their motivation, not to have a monarchy. And there was tremendous battles between, let's say, Thomas Jefferson and, and uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton as to how strong the government should be. Jefferson believed that the states should maintain all of the power. And uh, uh, Hamilton believed, uh, with the same loathing of, of authority, of, of authoritarianism, of, of uh, a leader appointed by God, a monarch, of dressed as your majesty, uh, uh, who was buttressed by a churchman as your holiness, uh, they were afraid of this. They were both afraid. But uh, uh, Hamilton believed that if the states maintained power uh, over a very weak government, they would indep become independent countries. And so the whole battle uh, that took place in which basically Hamilton won was a strong central government with checks and balances. There would be a three-part, a court, independent has to be independent of a legislature, which has to be independent of an executive. And it, they were aware that human beings are human beings, and seeking power and seeking favor for oneself and one's family is built in. They didn't know about evolution. They didn't know that about the, the uh, uh, selfish gene that we love our children in part because they share our genes and we love our, our nieces and nephews because they have less of our genes, but we still love them, but don't love them like we do our children. And the people we spend the most amount of time protecting and nurturing are the ones who share our gene pool. Okay. They didn't know that, but they understood the, the individual need for power, individual need for self-control, the individual need for justification of one's actions, to exceed oneself, not only as a powerful individual, as an individual who mattered, but as a worthy and good individual. And so they created a system of checks and balances that nobody should be able to ascend to power without uh, uh, coming up against the power of the other branches, the courts and the, the, uh, the legislature, the justice system. 
And again, just as a side, I'm watching our justice system become politicized. And uh, this is a terrible, horrible, frightening thing. So what we have then is this hierarchy. Uh, even the people like Jefferson and, 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 um, and Hamilton still saw women as inferior to men. And a woman who didn't know her place in the hierarchy um, was punished, uh, was made to know her place. And her individuality could be expressed within the family life or within children, but not in the larger political life. When in the 20th century did women first get the right to vote? When the Constitution was written, they wanted to know, what do we do with blacks? And they decided that blacks were inferior to whites, something that's still going on in our battle to become a better democracy and a better country. And they were given the status of three-fifths of a human being. And even Jefferson and George Washington, Democrats, Till the core, and I mean Democrats in the not political sense, but in terms of a belief in a democracy in which there is no monarch. It was less uh, defined in positive terms than it was in negative terms. No monarchs still kept slaves and kept them all of their lives. It was Washington, I believe, who on his deathbed uh, freed his slaves and parts of his fortune went to his slaves so that they could start life as, as, as uh, free, free citizens, as independent citizens, uh, although they still would not have the right to vote. So, there's a hierarchy. What brought about democracy? Well, let me a little more about the hierarchy. The hierarchy exists in all of our relationships. But because it's like the water we swim around in, we don't see it. We don't define it that way. Uh, we struggle to be as good as we can in a hierarchical sense. Who can we be better than? And the fear of many individuals in the world, in these societies that are fully hierarchical, is not to fall to the bottom. And that's still part of the hierarchical system in our country. What defines the best in our country? Well, if you're a great warrior, you can go to the top of, of the hierarchy. And our best warriors are very often uh, sports figures. People who show enormous prowess as warriors within a more socialized, less destructive sense. Money defines the hierarchy in many ways. The rich are better than the poor. And most of us dream about more money and the power and the wealth and the magic we think money will bring us. A longer life, a better life maybe even entry into the other life, which will be the permanent life that is so much a part of a hierarchical system in which there is a strong supernatural element. 
I mentioned the struggle with women and men. Um, women who were at the time of the Constitution signing, not allowed to read and write. Uh, one of their jobs was, uh, uh, and, and, and entertainments was to make samplers. But they didn't write the sample. The sayings were written by men. They just filled in the, the thread, the, the, the wool that uh, allowed the sampler to become a, a picture to be hung on the wall. Marriage is a hierarchical. Uh, for many years, when I was at the Flushing Hospital as a psychologist, for several years, we ran a marital program. And that was really fascinating to me, uh, in which the struggle for power within the marriage was based upon uh, not democratic negotiation, because the way in which a democracy, when it is a democracy, uh, sorts out conflict is through a, a uh, negotiated system. There is a you, there is a me, there is an us in the marriage, and that's negotiated. The most miserable human beings would come in uh, uh, to my office in which there was a struggle for power, in which love had turned to hate, in which sex was no longer pleasurable, but a struggle for domination, uh, in which the man would try to dominate the woman sexually, and her means of fighting back was to withhold. You know, the, the joke, I have a headache, I have a backache, uh, because it was not an exercise in mutual love but an exercise in mutual power. Uh, resentment, shame, guilt, permeating the relationship. And I didn't think then about uh, uh, a hierarchy and the authoritarianism that's built in. And by the way, again, I keep forgetting, uh, in an authoritarian system, you have to be obedient in your behavior. I remember in many of the teachers, I used to fear and dislike, even those I respected. I still feared and disliked them as people uh, told us that a good student is an obedient student. Obedience in behavior. In a totalitarian system, and this I got as a definition from Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the... Uh, UN ambassador, I think, I'm almost sure, under Ronald Reagan. She was a professor uh, at Columbia University. I think she went back to her academic life. She said, in a totalitarian system, it is a, you have to be loyal in your beliefs. And I would add, as a therapist, in your emotional responses. And, of course, the, the, most, the masterpiece of a hierarchy in which the totalitarian becomes complete is uh, 1984 by George Orwell, in which, as O'Brien, the inquisitor of poor Winston, says, when we finish with you, you and we tell you two and two is five, you will believe that two and two is five. You believe in the alternative facts as we teach them. There will be no truths, there will be no facts, except those that we tell you are the facts and the truth. 
And I remember when I got to the end of the book, I could believe that somehow Winston would resist and a piece of him would still be him. And the last words of the book are, he loved Big Brother, the total, the fictitious totalitarian leader uh, that, that was the head, the mythical head of the hierarchy of uh, Eurasia, one of the three uh, divisions in the world constantly. There was East Asia, Eurasia, and Oceania. No, no, England was part of Oceania, uh, if, I, if I got it right. Uh, ever warring, no one winning, uh, keeping the war going uh, forever and ever, because at that point, everybody has to play ball and listen to the leader, because those wicked, evil, demonized beings in the other countries, in the other areas, uh, will eat you up, and they will. It's locked in a struggle of hostility and survival. Okay. I'm over a half hour point. I left myself an hour, but I'm going to stop. Um, I'm going to, to leave at this point because where I really want to go at this point is to talk about not the structure itself, but those of us in individuals, as individuals, living our life in a hierarchy or a democracy. So my next broadcast, I'll talk about that. And I want to talk about the factors that allowed for a democracy to exist, uh, a strong democracy, like universal education, uh, uh, the rise of literature not written by the church. Uh, people were taught to uh, read the Bible, and they turned around and they read and then wrote anything they wanted to, uh, uh, expressing their individual beliefs and, and ideas and fantasies. Uh, and then we'll go from there. So I'm going to say good evening. And uh, 35 minutes is enough. Nobody has to listen more than that to my babbling. If anybody wants to call in at this point, you can call in at uh, 646-716-7756. And if you want to discuss with me uh, your ideas in relation to the show, uh, please do so. I'll stay on the air for another minute or two. If not, I'm going to wait another minute and see if I could turn on a movie. My wife is out for the evening. I could turn on something maybe she doesn't like. Maybe I can see something with hobbits in it. Okay. I'm going to end my episode.